Welcome, it's Toby Haydokes Who's Round, and the edition you have to listen to over and over and over again until somebody does the right thing and runs me over. So, um, we're both working, me and my interviewer, E, are both working today, so we've just sort of hiked out in a central London lunch hour to a, 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 a coffee chain that we're not going to plug. Um, so, uh, excuse the noise, but uh, I'm going to ask her to tell me who she is and why I'm talking to her about Doctor Who. Hello, my name's Aidless Bellin, and I played Bev in Father's Day. Now then, uh, you, I mentioned this just before we started recording, you were one of the Welsh Cockneys, because <laughs> it's an entire wedding reception populated by Welsh actors. So how did you come to be playing a Cockney in Wales in Doctor Who? Right, well, um, I got a call from my agent saying, would you like to go up for Doctor Who? And I, of course, was really, really keen. And um, we were told it was South London accents, but that was OK, because I grew up in Reading until I was 11. So I was kind of familiar with that accent. And then, even though I am Welsh, and um, so, yeah, there was a gang of us, I think, who were all local bookings, and uh, we were very excited to be there. Because, actually, it was the first big thing that came to Cardiff, you know? That, I think it was 2005 that we filmed it, and that was the first big, big BBC production. There were other things that had been made in the BBC, obviously, in Cardiff, but now there's this massive drama village, casualties there, Torchwood has been there, all that sort of stuff. But at the time, this was quite a new thing, so it was fun to be a part of that. Well, yes, because it would be unusual for any actor sort of prior to our generation who wanted a decent television career to not be firmly based in London. Yeah, and I think also lots of my work is in Welsh, so for me to do something in English was brilliant because it meant that I could tell friends who kind of watched Pablo come with subtitles and struggled that they would actually understand what I was saying. So I had a party and everything. All my mates came round. It was lovely, really exciting. And it, but it was the first series of Doctor Who coming back, so was there an element of nobody knew if this was going to work? Because there was nothing like it on television at that time. I think there was, and I think probably Christopher Eccleston was quite nervous about that, I guess, because it it was on his shoulders in a sense, wasn't it? I remember him telling me he wanted to try and play um, somebody quite evil next, like a paedophile was his next role, so that he didn't get into this mould of being only the Doctor. Um, So I suppose he was probably, out of everybody, maybe the person who was most nervous about that, in that he was the Doctor, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, I mean, he got eaten halfway through your episode, so he he probably wasn't around much, was he? Um, Well, most of my scenes were with him, because most of my scenes were at the wedding, and he turned up at the wedding. So um, I did meet him a fair bit. and got on really well, he was lovely, very straight-talking, but fun. Because obviously it, it got to the point where he, you know, not long after, he decided to, to quit after one series. But did he seem happy enough there? I think he did, yeah. I mean, obviously we didn't have the kind of relationship where I could say to him, Chris, are you happy? <laughs> <laughs> also, I think, had he said no, I would have been like, what? You've got this huge opportunity. I'll be the doctor. <laughs> um, so no, uh, I, don't, I didn't get to... But he, he seemed happy to me, as much as you can tell as somebody you don't know very well but yeah he seemed happy I mean the hours were really long for him it was really intense but I think he seemed to be enjoying the opportunity yeah and it's a good episode it's quite a it's quite a, it's a good episode um, in terms of it's a really sad one yeah it is quite moving and um, 
Yeah, it is. And I guess it's got that le- it's got those layers, hasn't it, of if you could go back in time, would you and all that messiness of, you know, what would you do differently and all that. And of course, you were dressed in the 1980s. Absolutely. I you know, I'm going to keep that. I wear it every Saturday night that dress. My boobs were practically falling out of it. Um, and also, I couldn't wear a bra with it. So when I ran away from the alien creatures, it was a bit of a kind of tricky situation. I had to make sure everything stayed in, in its cage. <laughs> I like that phraseology. That's right. And when you're all running away from CGI, I mean, did they have something that they dangled in its place? Uh, yeah, one of the crew held up a long stick with a uh, coloured kind of piece of card on the end so that was our eye line so that was quite useful and also quite surreal because we spent hours kind of running around the church hiding from big sticks (laughs) but I think there's worse ways to pay your bills absolutely absolutely and you must have had some days that were quite light in terms of you've got the lines but you were there all the time so so it's something you've got the, the, the background is bolstered by actors rather than extras, which I suppose is better for the director. Yeah, I think so. And also, we I'm on that in that episode, I made some lifelong friends. So I'm still very good friends with Rian, uh, who played Suze. And um, I actually went and helped her give birth to her second child. So that's kind of amazing. And yeah. actually, just after her, her son, second son was born, her husband can be there. So uh, I went along, and just afterwards we said, "God, isn't this mad? You know, like, had we both not got those jobs, we would, you know, we wouldn't have shared this, which is such a sort of incredible moment to share." So uh, I've got quite a lot to be thankful for uh, from Doctor Who, to be honest. It's something that a lot of Doctor Who actors I speak to they say it's a job for life, and you get friends for life, and you know. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, and also the other person I'm still in touch with is Camille, um, who played Billy's mum. Yeah. And she is actually, at the moment, acting in one of my best friend's sitcoms. And um, it was really good to see her because... Uh, so I was, in a, I was in it too. It's called Edge of Heaven, and it's on ITV um, next year. And it was really nice to catch up with her. And it, it, we just picked up where we left off, you know. Is, is she anything like Jackie Tyler? Do you know what? She is quite similar. <laughs> She's quite ditzy. And very, very positive and effervescent. So all of that warmth that you get on screen from watching her is absolutely what you get from her in real life. She is one of the loveliest people. And, you know, you could, when you first meet her, think, is this genuine? You know, is this warmth and this effervescence genuine? But it absolutely is. You know, she's really caring and a lovely person to work with because she's also really good fun. So we used to wind each other up and get the giggles quite a lot. Well, and it's worth mentioning that when you um, told a friend of yours that you got the part, another one, because Doctor Who fans will creep into your life forever and ever, um, and, a, and a friend of mine, Johnny Candon, who put us in touch, um, was there when you announced that you got the part. Is that yeah, because right? I didn't realise that Johnny was such a big fan, so I texted our friend in common just saying, oh, by the way, I got Doctor Who. And I got about four missed calls from him straight away, and I was doing a temping job at the time in HTV Wales, so I couldn't answer the phone. I was thinking, why is he ringing me so incessantly? I mean, like, you know, he could have texted back saying, nice one, well done. Eventually, I picked up the message, and he was like, you need to call me now. I'm in the pub with Johnny Cannon, and he has to talk to you about Doctor Who. You have to tell him what you're doing, what's in the episode. And, of course, I couldn't say any of this stuff either, so it made for quite a frustrating conversation for Johnny, I think. All I could say was that minute. 
Well, it's a good job you didn't break your non-disclosure agreement. We like that. But this will happen to you for the because you you said in your email to me I, I didn't do that much. It doesn't matter. You know that you are you are tarred for life. Oh, do you know what you make a you make a Z lister feel very <laughs> very good about themselves. <laughs> I would have loved to have done more, but um, it was I was happy to be there at all. Well, you're mentioned in other episodes. Bev lives on, if only by name. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. And actually, um, Russell T. Davis did write me and Sue's, Trian's character, back in um, later on because it had gone quite well and apparently they were very happy. So he wrote us back in, but then it got too expensive because it was the final episode of that series with a big car chase and all sorts of things and then it was too expensive. So I got a phone call to say, you've been written back in. And I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. And then I got a phone call about a week later saying, you've been written back out. <laughs> oh, 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 no. But these things happen. A fickle world of television. Yeah. But I want, it's up to you, dear listeners, whether that counts as an anecdote from Parting of the Ways, whether I can cross that off my list, because I've got a long way to go and I'll take what I'm given. Um, but And it's interesting because you talk about, it's, that's the, the crazy thing about the acting world, isn't it? You've just got a part in Doctor Who, the biggest show in, on television, or what has become the biggest show on television, but you're telling your mate whilst you're tempting, you're, while you're temping at HTV. Yeah, that's absolutely the sort of bittersweet nature of being a writer or a performer, I think. You go from being, um, having a really glamorous, exciting job to probably doing something on the other end of the spectrum just to pay the bills. And uh, that's partly what makes it interesting and it is completely unpredictable. Um, and then, obviously, given a choice, it'd be great to act or perform or write all the time. But it's, I think it's quite rare for me, most people that, that that's possible to do it all the time. But you're not one of those that just sits there and waits for the work to come because you've done your own, your own shows. So tell me about yeah. writing and performing your own character. Um, so I've, I've started writing characters, uh, comedy characters, back in 2006 and did them on the circuit in London and loved it and really enjoyed it. Partly because I wanted to try and... Um, create characters because I love observing people and the way people behave so that's what I did and then I w- took two solo shows to Edinburgh and uh, really enjoyed that experience it was like fresh as we call over again <laughs> except it's expensive but you know a massive brilliant apprenticeship and I loved it and then since then I've been doing lots of work with the Welsh language channel S4C so I've got a regular show that I do with um the BBC Sports presenter Jonathan Davis, who used to play rugby for Wales. I'm like his sidekick comedy rugby reporter. So that's a great job during the rugby season because I've been following the Welsh rugby team around the world um, as my alter ego, Madame Rugby. And I do Ali G-style interviews with the Welsh rugby team. And a little like Doctor Who, when I got the part, I didn't know that much about it. Equally, with the rugby show, didn't know that much about it. So I've been introduced into this whole new world. So how did you get that? On the strength of your comedy, and I thought, well, um, we can, we can mould her into a rugby aficionado. No, what happened was I had a character who was desperate to be famous. And for a year, I um, did what everybody was doing in 2007, which was things like auditioning for Big Brother, trying to be a wag, um, all of those things that people like people who wanted to be Jordan basically were doing. As my character, one of my characters, I went undercover and tried to do all of those things. So I went to all the nightclubs where all the, um, the football players hang out, tried to meet a footballer, 
um, dressed in the same way as these wannabe wags, did it all undercover. And then a friend of mine who's a filmmaker, Amy Neal, came with me and she filmed it all undercover. And then we went to the Big Brother auditions in 2007 and again I auditioned in character so they didn't know that I was pretending to be somebody I wasn't. And we made a short film about that experience because I got through, I got, I could have, kind of, I got quite far down the audition process but then couldn't do it because obviously I was pretending to be somebody I wasn't. And it might have been a bit of a dodgy career move. Yeah. So I think the beauty of creating comedy characters is it, it opens new doors and you're not waiting for that phone call from your agent to say, somebody else has written this, do you want to be in it? Or do you want to audition for it? You're saying, I've written this and, you know, I'll be in it. <laughs> so you're taking a bit more control, which is a good feeling. Well, yes, control is one thing that I would say as a comedian I have more than I have as an actor. Yeah. And that safety net when you write your own one-person shows, but you've sort of cut holes in that safety net by going, yeah, but I'll throw myself into situations <laughs> where anything could happen. Yeah, that for me is very exciting. So, um, with my rugby character, Madame Rugby, when I was out at the Rugby World Cup in 2011, um, a lot of people, the New Zealand fans, took to the character. So at the semi-final of the Rugby World Cup, which is massive, massive deal for rugby followers, it was between France and the All Blacks, so two of the biggest teams in the world. And um, I got invited to go on network TV in New Zealand to commentate as the character. So I was sat there with Buck Shelford, who used to be captain of the All Blacks, and um, Glenn Osborne, who also used to play for the, for the All Blacks, and then me, <laughs> talking rubbish in the middle. But they enjoy the contrast. So I think that's the kind of situation where we were commentating live on the game. And the producer just said to me, we don't want you to say anything technical, you can just be funny. And in character, that's quite easy because I know the character quite well. So she just said ridiculous things, basically, about the players and what they've got up to on the field. And situations like that I find really exciting because you, you don't know what's going to happen. It is like live, live comedy you know, yeah. anything can happen. Any, absolutely. And you never know how it's going to go. No. But I'm, I've got quite big balls, so I don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of think ultimately if it doesn't go so well, no one's going to die. It's not the end of the world. So I find it quite exciting, quite exhilarating. Yeah, and there's, there's a danger because we both sort of inhabit some of the same areas that, that we take, that I will take for the listeners performing at the Edinburgh Festival as something they know all about because I do it. But it's, it's an experience quite unlike any other, isn't it? It is. Um, I think it's like, essentially, it, it, it could be seen as a massive job interview in public because the whole point of Edinburgh Festival is to show what you can do. And so, you know, you, you sit at home and you think, what is the best show I could possibly do at this moment? And then you put your time, your soul, your energy, uh, your money into this show and take it up. And it essentially, it's very exposing because you're saying, I think this is really funny and you're opening up to the possibility that other people might not think the same. Um, but it's also brilliant because you get to perform your own show every day. Mm. So I think it's massively beneficial as a performer to do it. You know? And I also would say that what perhaps the sort of casual punter may not uh, encounter quite as palpably as, as we do is I still hear people in the 21st century, in 2013, when I introduce a woman on the bill, I hear, oh, women aren't funny. I mean, do you still, do you still have that? Um, I think that's more rife on the, on the stand-up circuit than it is on the character comedy circuit. Because sure. there's so many women doing character comedy for some reason, possibly because it's more theatrical. 
Um, I'm not sure. For me, I, I quite like hiding behind a character in that I feel funny if I'm pretending to be somebody else. But if I'm being myself, I don't find myself hilarious. Um, so I prefer to pretend to be somebody else. I find that more liberating. And I don't feel at all shy. I feel quite happy to go for it and push things. Whereas if I was doing it as myself, I'd probably feel a bit more self-conscious. So uh, in terms of that sexism, I, I haven't come up against it, to be honest. And actually, that's quite surprising, because I've been in quite a male world with my rugby show, mm. where I could have come up, come up against quite a lot of it. But the rugby players, I've actually found it quite fun to do an interview with a comedy performer, because they do lots and lots of the same old interviews. So Sam Warburton from the captain of the Welsh team always says to me afterwards, oh, that was a real laugh, you know. And it was nice because he wasn't asked the same old sports questions. He was asked things like, when the team go in the shower, who's got the biggest personality? <laughs> Ridiculous <laughs> things. <laughs> I know, that. they're probably grateful that it mixes it up from the usual, the usual stuff. Yeah, and I think also the, um, all the interviews and things are on YouTube. She's got her own YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash Madame Rugby. Um, but the, the players kind of reveal a different side to their personality because they're not being asked, you know, how did you feel the game went, why did you lose, all of those questions that maybe might not be that fun for them to answer. So they get to talk about other things in their lives, which is nice. It's a real juggle, isn't it, nowadays as an actor? You have to, you've, you clearly, you know, you do all these, these different things. So where, I mean, was, was, were you always going to perform? Where, where, did, where did the genesis of that start? I think I always, I did radio plays when I was a kid for Radio 4 and because I went to youth theatre in Cardiff where I grew up um, from when I was 11 onwards. And um, I loved youth theatre. It was like the highlight of my week, you know, it was amazing. And then when I went on to university in Edinburgh, I used to do loads of plays with Bedlam, the theatre society there. And I just realised that I was happiest when I was doing a play or working on something creative with other people. And so that for me was like a massive light bulb moment of thinking, well, if that's when I'm happiest, that's what I should try and do to earn my living. So I always wanted to perform professionally. I always hoped I would, but um, I went to do a degree in French and Spanish first, and then I went to do a postgrad in acting because my parents said, go for it, that's what you really want, but get something behind you just in case. And I'm glad they did. At the time, I was like, really, do I have to? But I'm massively glad I did because it just gives you a bit more security. And everything you do informs an actor. You know, it does, every yeah. Life experience. Oh, completely, yeah. Every experience, every book you read, every everyone you meet, it, it'll give you something you can so, feed on. So you do French and Spanish. You're fluent in Welsh as well. Welsh is my first language, so I spoke Welsh before I spoke English. Even though we lived in Reading, so our neighbours all thought we were really weird and that we were speaking Klingon or something, <laughs> you know. And um, and they used to really think it was odd that this family spoke this language they'd never heard. All our neighbours. But the kids on the street didn't find it at all weird, and they would find they, the kids on our street who were pure Reading, born and bred, learn how to say things like "Can I have a biscuit?" in Welsh. <laughs> what's what's "Can I have a biscuit?" in Welsh then? "Can I get a biscuit?" Oh well, there we go. I think I can even. <laughs> yeah, it's not too difficult, is it? <laughs> and do you? Find, I mean, we all find reasons why we get pigeonholed. Do, do, do you? Uh, you've got a very Welsh name. Yeah. You know, you, do, is is that something that occasionally you think restricts you or? Do you know what? I don't think it does restrict me in the sense that I feel fortunate that I've got some kind of niche. And for me, being Welsh is a niche um, in terms of where I fit into this massive sea of performers who are out there. Um, 
and culturally as well. It, it, uh, in Wales, we do a lot of singing, a lot of performing, a lot of music, and all that stuff has, has been great and useful. Um, so no, I don't feel pigeonholed. Obviously, it's always nice. I, sp- I spent some time in South America traveling and stuff, and I've got one character who is from Mexico, and it's always liberating to be somebody completely different. And so her English is a bit rubbish and, you know, her main language is Spanish. And that's fun to perform because she's completely different from me. So I guess I don't want to perform as Welsh people all my life, but I don't. It hasn't been a problem. No, USP is good, says he who earns his living through geekery and bad skin. Um, <laughs> they're my Doctor Who and psoriasis. They've, uh, they've paid my mortgage for the past five years. Nothing wrong with that, though, is there? <laughs> no, absolutely not. And I there's... mean, you know, lots of people have an interest in both. Yes, they do, though, yeah. don't they? I'm not sure which is the strangest. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so, OK, well, what's, what, so what's next? What's, what's in the future? So, at the moment, I'm writing a sitcom called Night Shift, which is about mother-daughter relationships. And um, it's about three generations of the same family who live in the same two up, two down. The daughter is about to move out, and then she finds out her mother is not very well. So it's about them making the most of what they think is the last six months of their time together. Turns out to be quite different, but I won't give that away. Okay. So I'm developing it with um, Ruth Jones's production company, Tidy Productions, and um, I'm halfway through a half-hour script at the moment. So that's what's that's my main project at the moment, and that's what I'm kind of waking up in the middle of the night thinking about and excited about. Oh, so, well, we're touching wood for yeah, that Yeah, thank you. We'll send good, positive vibes thank through you. the sitcom ether. Oh, yeah, that would be fantastic. Brilliant. Well, thank you for your time. What, what, uh, what, is, your, um, what is your charity of choice that I can direct the listeners to? So my charity of choice, particularly because the weather's so bad at the moment, would be Shelter Cymru, so Shelter Wales. And the final question, Doctor, is 50 years old this year, which is why I've kidnapped you and taken you underground for a latte, um, just around the corner from Broadcasting House. <coughs> What is your message to the listening Doctor Who fans out there? When I took the part in Doctor Who, I never ever thought I would get any letters. And I got loads of letters. And they were really lovely and really friendly and touching and um, made me feel really, really good. So I'll say thanks. Say thanks, but don't give them your home address. (laughs) (laughs) Ailish Bellin, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Bless you. Thank you. Well, that was all right. That was great. Yeah, are you sure? Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Thanks to Ailish, who has asked you to donate to Shelter Cymru. Apologies if my pronunciation is poor. Which is www.sheltercymru.org.uk, which is shelter is S-H-E-L-T-E-R. But you knew that bit. Cymru, C-Y-M-R-U. Should have known that bit, really. But um, there we go. Thanks for listening. There's a few more of these to come. He could be. He had his moments. He did have his moments, which was very amusing. I mean, he would have a tantrum in the rehearsal hall and he'd storm out and Douglas would say to whoever was third assistant, oh, for God's sake, go down to the BBC club, buy him a beer and bring him back. My thanks to Johnny Candon, and if you, like Johnny, know somebody who was in Doctor Who who would like to be interviewed by me, then please let me know via Big Finish.
coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Men of Ravenna, I demand your immediate surrender. I am Flavius Belisarius of the Imperial Roman Army, and I take this city in the name of the Emperor Justinian. Doctor Who, the secret history. At this moment, I can remember how this whole journey turned out because I've lived through it before. But as soon as I step out of the TARDIS, the timelines will change. It'll be me who does all this, and I won't remember what happened the first time around because it won't have happened yet. I didn't expect this. There he is, the blonde one. You're quite sure this doctor is a Persian spy. Why should she want to tell people I'm a spy? Perhaps she's a witch. Does the weight of history rest on the Doctor's shoulders? Yes. Yes, it does. There's someone in there. Someone who's gone missing from the world. What have I done? Vicky. Stephen. It's, um, very good to see you. Who are you? I'm the Doctor. The doctor. doctor? Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com.